Welcome, everyone, to Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast brought to you by the Notre Dame Alumni Association. This is again Dan Allen, and my guest this week is Sister Benedicta Duna, a 2008 graduate of the university and now a sister of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration. So welcome to the podcast, Sister Benedicta. Thank you. Thanks so much for being here. Let's begin in our typical way, if you could tell the audience a bit about yourself and your background. Sure. So I originally am from Cleveland, Ohio, the Cleveland area, and I came to Notre Dame, actually transferred in as a sophomore. I started at University of Chicago my freshman year and then uh, came over here and started out pre-med, but then ended up switching. I kind of weeded myself out of the pre-med program and switched to theology, which was actually before I realized I was called to religious life, but kind of fit right into that. And so, yeah, I've been, I entered after I graduated in 2008. And so I've been a sister for just about 11 years now Mm -hmm. and really got to know the sisters because of the proximity to Notre Dame. So when I was discerning, then I thought, well, that's not too far away over there in Mishawaka. (laughs) (laughs) No commitment of a plane ticket or anything like that. So, so yeah, I just am very blessed in having had the Notre Dame experience, but then also just how the Lord led me to my vocation sort of right in the backyard of Notre Dame Mm -hmm. in just kind of a seamless way. Yeah. What were some of the highlights of growing up in the Cleveland area and your education and family background? Sure. So my family is 100% Hungarian. Mm. So all four of my grandparents emigrated from Hungary. Cleveland actually had the largest population of Hungarians outside of Budapest, the capital of Hungary, for a long time. So my mother's parents came from emigrated after the revolution in 56 mm-hmm. and but my father's parents had come a little earlier after world war ii so the hungarian culture really shaped my whole background so aside from being catholic being hungarian was sort of this number one yeah. <laughs> definitive <laughs> factor so we had hungarian school which was on mondays after after school so of course we abhorred it because there's more school We had Hungarian scouts, which was scouting with a cultural twist, I guess, Mm -hmm. Um, just a lot of focus on the history of the country and the culture, and then also Hungarian folk dancing. So that was really a pretty big part of growing up. It was my first language, actually. Mm. And then, I mean, English became dominant pretty quickly, but (laughs) I was definitely very much part of that even until entering the convent. And I went to Catholic grade school, elementary school, and then public high school. I'm one of seven kids, so just switched over to the public at the point of high school, but had a good good education there. And, and really, yeah, I was just kind of looking actually just to get out of the house when I was <laughs> in high school. Like, all right, where yeah, can with, I go With away? six siblings, right? <laughs> yeah. And where do you fall in the, in the order there? I'm third, third of the seven, okay. and there are four girls and three boys. So, And what was that like growing up in a house with that many people? (laughs) Exciting, right? Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, right. Um, It was pretty chaotic. I mean, it really was. And it just, there was just always a lot going on. My mom also, in addition to us kids, babysat kids for a little extra income. So 
I guess in the sense that there was always a full house, always people around, always kids around, which that was something I started to miss as I went to school and mm-hmm. under the comment was just the little kids around. But yeah, definitely a very strong family bond, especially with extended family too. We were always together on Sundays and and really the faith shaped our life. So we would go to mass sometimes during the week and then um, also pray the rosary as a family. Mm-hmm. So it was very, it was definitely very much part and parcel of mm-hmm. our life growing mm-hmm. up. And you're a religious sister now. Did you have any interaction with religious sisters as a child? No. So I, when I started to discern religious life, I really had no idea about it. I technically did have sisters in grade school. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, because they didn't wear a habit, I didn't I didn't associate them as having maybe experienced what I thought of. Not that the habit makes a sister, but sure. I guess as a child, it didn't stand out Just to make me. make that connection, maybe. right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you're in public high school, and then it's time to think about college. What drew you to the University of Chicago? So it's kind of funny because in the end, so I... I was kind of an overachiever, which probably, you know, most Notre Dame people are. <laughs> and then you get here and you think, oh, no, <laughs> I'm at the bottom of the totem yeah, pole. Yeah. Not a big fish anymore. Yeah. <laughs> so I applied to a lot of schools and actually didn't get into any of them except for University of Chicago. Mm-hmm. And I actually didn't want to go there, but I wanted to leave home. So <laughs> actually, that's how I ended up there. And the providence of it is just so beautiful because so many things happened my friend freshman year where it just really was the place I was supposed to be, even though it was definitely a temporary place to be. So looking back, I can totally see God's hand in that. Are there any examples that you can think of of hints that God was giving you towards what your future might hold? During that year? During that year? Sure. So I was really just searching for truth. I So we did have the faith as very much a part of our life, but it was something that I I think was maybe still kind of external to me and coming of coming into adulthood I knew I needed to make those decisions of choosing the faith for myself and so that really began in earnest my freshman year as soon as I left you know I was still going to mass but I realized I didn't really have personal conviction and I knew that wasn't to just go to mass because my parents had taught us that wasn't going to be sufficient mm-hmm. it was a regular part of your life but you didn't feel that internal call to go right. at all times. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah, and so I really was just starting to seek the truth. And part of kind of how God started to work was I randomly decided to start taking Italian because most of my classes were just sort of given because they're general credits. And mm-hmm. so I the language was what I could choose. So I took Italian turned out that my TA was a member of Regnum Christi, which Mm. is a lay movement in the church. And so she ended up, she actually found out through this little conversation, you know, sono un carese, like I'm practicing Italian, you know, (laughs) these little snippets. And she said, no way. She knew this woman from Hungary who's doing this volunteer year in the States. And she said, oh, you have to meet her. So through that, I actually kind of got involved with Remnant Christi a little bit. I was still kind of skeptical and holding it at arm's length, but I just knew that I needed to understand more. I couldn't just walk away from from the faith. So then it actually ended up happening that 
that same group of women invited me to a conference in Rome mm. and on sort of the new feminism of John Paul. I thought, well, that's really nice. I can't really go to Rome for the weekend, but yeah, thanks. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but then I actually ended up going to study abroad my the third trimester of my freshman year. Uh-huh. And then as a result of that, I was in Pisa and was going to Rome for this conference. My friend called me and she said, can you actually come to St. Peter's? And it turns out it was actually, John Paul II was dying. Oh, wow. Um, so I was actually, that was Friday night and Saturday he died. We weren't in the square that night, but we were in the city. And then Monday was the first day that they had his body lying and stayed in St. Peter's. So I stayed and was able to get in line, see his body. And I mean, that was just, yeah, talk about the providence right, of having landed there. At that there. time, right? Oh my goodness. Right. So yeah, the Lord's hand was really on me, I think. And, and so all those pieces from just the various experiences at University of Chicago were, it was really apparent to me that God was doing something. I just mm-hmm. didn't know what. Mm-hmm. Yeah, something is afoot yeah. here, yeah. but what's, what's happening? And then you transferred to Notre Dame. So mm-hmm. was that part of this desire to deepen your faith or what prompted that that transfer? Yes. So I was definitely wanting to be more formed in the faith at maybe more of an intellectual level. I had had a good life team group in high school, but I think I was just seeking that the knowledge mm-hmm. of the faith. Mm-hmm. And so I knew I had kind of thought about transferring out of University, University of Chicago just because of kind of a lack of formation outside of the intellect. Sure. And so I was looking for community and for faith. And so, yeah, Notre Dame sort of just popped up. My my mom's family actually lived in South Bend for a couple of years. So oh, okay. we kind of grew up being Notre Dame fans and had the whole Irish thing going already. Yeah. So <laughs> <laughs> Hungarian, Irish, Italian, yeah. there's a whole, the whole, whole right. mix. Yeah. yeah. So then when I was looking to transfer, Notre Dame was just a good option just on those two basic counts. And, and then it was actually the easiest transfer application of the schools I was looking at and just really seemed like a good fit. So. And what was your time like as a student? As a transfer student, it's interesting because I still sometimes think, gosh, I feel a little bit like I missed out on something mm-hmm. um, at, as part of just the whole overall experience. And I think I kind of tie it to maybe the freshman orientation where sure. you're sort of indoctrinated in a dorm. <laughs> 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 Becomes your lifeblood, you know, right? <laughs> right? Yeah. We had a good trans- uh, community with the transfer students, but I did live in Welsh fam. And then, but really kind of found friends sort of in back ways just because it wasn't that natural bonding in the first week with all the freshmen. So it was just through classes, friends of friends. It it seemed to be that really a lot of my friends that I started to make were serious about their faith. And so Mm -hmm. that did kind of keep shaping me. I wasn't super involved in extracurricular activities. I ended up becoming involved with the Edith Stein Project, Mm -hmm. which my friends had started. I attended it sophomore year and loved it. It was the first time, honestly, that I thought of myself as a woman. Mm. (laughs) I mean, I really just, I think, just was thought of myself pretty generically as a human being. And it totally opened this door of having unique gifts because of your femininity, um, Mm -hmm. because of your gender. And so 
I was just on fire from that. And so I told my friend who had started it and she said, you want to help? And so (laughs) I do this, some of this work. So junior and senior year, then I did end up helping organize and getting the speakers and fundraising and all of that stuff. And, and just for those who might not be totally familiar, this is a conference on this topic of femininity and women in the church. Yes. So the Edith Stein project really started out at focusing on promoting the dignity of women Mm -hmm. and it's morphed a little bit more into complementarity in general. So understanding our masculinity and femininity. So there's a different theme each year, but Mm -hmm. yes, it takes its inspiration from Edith Stein and sort of her writings on women, their nature and vocation. Mm -hmm. So definitely inspiring as to exploring those gifts and, and that reality. Yeah. And what about the decision to eventually study theology? What was what went into that, and how did that go for you? Sure. So I, I did come in pre-med, and I really just, I think I had a surgery when I was a little younger kid, so I thought, oh, yeah, I want to help people, and yeah. <laughs> that sort of inspiration. So, And as I was taking chemistry, mainly gen chem, just kick my butt. And I <laughs> just thought, okay, if this is gen chem, there's no way I'm making it through med school. If organic chemistry is on the horizon, <laughs> right, then yeah. yeah. I want to go under a rock. So I was thinking about that. And then actually that coincided with going to the Edith Stein Project and sort of opening the door to, wow, maybe maybe I should look at myself in a different light. That that's I feel called to this. I have this desire to help people, but maybe that can be expressed in so many other ways. So I spoke with someone who suggested maybe counseling and psychology because women really do like to help people and sort of get into the nitty gritty of people's stories and and walk with them. So I was looking up the psychology classes in the course catalog, which I don't even know if they print that anymore. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny how quickly things can change. Um, And then I talked to actually Professor Solomon um, was there and he said, oh yeah, if you're, if you're not majoring in anything but philosophy or theology at Notre Dame, you're wasting your money. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe a little bit biased. (laughs) (laughs) So I thought, okay, let's, let's look into that. So I looked at the theology classes and I thought, whoa, I have to do that. And so it just, again, was something, a door was opened and I just could see kind of a passion flame up, I guess. And Mm -hmm just got really excited about it. Yeah. It's interesting how you talk about your heart on fire, things Mm -hmm. burning within you as you start to, you're in Rome and the opportunity to pray for John Paul II and this Edith Stein project and theology kind of, you were listening, you were listening to these moments in your life. What, that probably all contributed, but were there what were some of the moments that then your heart started to become inflamed towards religious life and what mm-hmm. that might look like yeah so you're so right that all those things just were happening organically in my life and that's really when i talk to other women who are thinking about it is just yeah you just got to live your life but be open and and i just thank god for that grace cuz i wasn't looking for it at all mm-hmm. <laughs> but it just things fell in my lap and and true i did respond but I think what really began my discernment of religious life in earnest was following a retreat my sophomore year, which was actually put on by Regnum Christi in Chicago. Mm. I was there. It was a silent retreat, just the weekend. 
And there's a meditation about Our Lady standing at the foot of the cross. It was during Lent. And they just talked about her having this deep faith and having to have the most faith when she was standing at the foot of the cross. You know, everything seemed lost. Her son is being brutally murdered in front of her eyes. And yet it had been promised to her that he would rule forever. And so for whatever reason, that just really struck me. And it was the first time that faith actually made sense to me. Mm. For, for some reason, I I th- think I subconsciously thought that faith was supposed to sort of like a health and wealth sort of a thing, that uh-huh. if you believe, then life is roses and whatever, rainbows right. or, right. you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and And my life wasn't. You know, I spoke of the big family and then just, I think really honestly, a lot of wartime trauma from my grandparents Mm -hmm. that just got passed down. And so a lot of dynamics were just really hard. Mm -hmm. And so until that moment where I realized that faith is actually something that carries us through the darkness rather than just making your life easy, Mm -hmm. (laughs) I, in that understanding, I was able to accept that. And so in a way, I think the intellectual understanding went a little bit deeper into my heart. And so I just, after that meditation in prayer, just realized, yes, I want that. I want that kind of faith. I want to be faithful to Jesus to the end, um, even to death. I want to be with Mary at the foot of the cross. And yes, I want my faith to affect everything in my life. So the subsequent thought actually was, what better way than in religious life, mm-hmm. um, which I'd never thought before, just always thought I'd get married and have children. But in that moment, in sort of realizing, I think it was really a moment of realizing reality in a deeper way for what it is, the cross and and the reality of God's love and that the demand that that makes on us, not in a sort of imposing way, but in love, it really calls us totally. And so I was able to be open to that and to start then to be open to, yeah, I could respond literally with my whole life sort of set aside even for him. And then you mentioned the the lowest risk <laughs> discernment seemed to be a nearby mm-hmm. group of sisters. Mm-hmm. So the sisters of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration, which are just about, what, 10 miles or not even that south of here of campus. What was it like to be on a discernment weekend and have conversations with the sister? Were there some surprises along the way or, or aha moments that, that you could share with us? The discernment retreats, yeah, were great because you can just kind of go check it out. There's no commitment. The sisters aren't hounding you down or something. And and that's something I've always appreciated about our community is there's never really an expectation put on the women. I didn't experience that. And we try, I try not to put that on women, you know, for them to really feel free to discern and to really just explore and understand more. And so that was my experience on my first discernment retreat. But to backtrack a little, some of the aha moments preceded that, at least for me. So after the retreat, my sophomore year, I began to pray for the first time on a regular basis. And that really was the foundation of my discernment. 
not in an explicit way where I was praying about discernment, but just praying. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I actually, for the most part, felt like I was doing a really bad job, didn't think I prayed well, didn't think anything was happening, and yeah, thought, and actually didn't even really want to pray. But I just knew that that was, I just had to, and wanted to grow in my relationship with the Lord. But as time passed, so from sophomore, end of sophomore year till about end of junior year, I was in this rhythm of regular prayer, daily mass when I could, and basically just kind of became more aware of who I was. And that happened through becoming more aware of God's love. And so really, I think what was most defining of that time was that the Lord was showing me his love through the Eucharist, just the way that he's present literally everywhere you go waiting just in case you stop by Mm. (laughs) and that that sort of came the sense of his presence and his love through the eucharist came in studying abroad traveling and wherever you go there he is and then also here where okay it's a, a little place on the map right but in every building almost there's the blessed sacrament mm-hmm. and you can walk between dylan and alumni hall and he's surrounding you you yeah. know like that's my favorite spot <laughs> on campus <laughs> i like that um, <laughs> and i could go down the hall in my slippers you know and see him and he was waiting for me and so it was never a warm fuzzy but i that sense just kept growing. And then what I realized about myself in light of that was I couldn't respond except with my whole heart. Mm-hmm. I couldn't respond with, to that kind of love. And so that was sort of almost, I mean, at some point it became conscious, right? But right. it was very gradual. But then there was a sort of aha moment where I was praying in Welsh Fam Chapel and it was beautiful. I got to go back a little while ago and it was just a beautiful moment to sort of be there again. But I was praying at the end of the day, and it was before 10 p.m. mass that I went to at Howard Hall, and all these memories came, and they were from freshman year and John Paul and all these different things that the Lord had been doing. And they came in sequence, and I realized, whoa, I am so called. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just the dots got connected, and I realized "That's that's what he's been doing is calling me to this. So it was kind of a, I mean, it was climactic, but not, but also not, I don't know, you know, just kind of that realization of what has been there all along. And so that was actually about a week before I went on my first discernment retreat. (laughs) So yeah, yeah, God just really took care of even being able to go into that retreat, being pretty certain that I was called and Mm -hmm. having some peace about that. And then just kind of starting to look at where so that that was, uh, I think it was both, you know, there's little moments and the aha moments. And right. they kind of are both just as significant. <laughs> right, yeah. And sometimes we're looking for that that big moment of the heavens open and right. God knocks us down and blinds <laughs> us or whatever right, it right. is. Or St. Francis sick and after battle and this, these big moments that we hear of. But a lot of times discernment is about paying attention to the smaller things that have mm-hmm. happened, and, and as you said, connecting the dots. Mm-hmm. So that seemed to be what, what happened for you. Right, yeah. right. What was it about the spirituality of this particular order of sisters that eventually you felt most at home there? So first of all, I met Sister Lois, mm-hmm. and Sister Lois is a character. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I think a lot of people around here know her, but she, I just remember thinking, who is this woman? (laughs) She just kind of took me by surprise. 
and her realness, uh, her hilarity, and just, I think her authenticity. I mean, she just is who she is. And so that was my first impression. But really, that I experienced that to varying degrees with all the sisters, just the joy, authenticity. And then that coincided also with our charism and understanding more about what charisms look like. And so I actually thought that all religious communities have perpetual adoration Mm -hmm. because I thought, well, if Jesus is your spouse, then let's have heart to heart all the time, whenever, or, Mm -hmm. you know, just the availability. But I came to find out on that weekend that I was, that most religious communities actually don't have perpetual adoration. And intuitively, I kind of knew that I wasn't called to the cloister, which is generally where there is perpetual adoration. So it was just sort of, I think that, desire for perpetual adoration was implanted in my heart to such a degree that it was really a non-negotiable in my mind. And then on that weekend, I learned that there's really, to my knowledge to this day, no other women's religious community in the U.S. that has perpetual adoration and is active. Mm -hmm. And so once I realized those things, then it was kind of just the deal was sealed. I mean, yeah, actually, so we were talking on the weekend of how do you know if you're called to a certain place? And some of the comments were things like, uh, well, you feel at home and you feel at peace and things like that. And I left and I didn't really realize that I'd felt that, but my friend asked me, how was it? And I said, well, I think I can, you know, finish school and then enter there. And that was actually the first time Mm. that I had thought that consciously right verbalized it (laughs) to someone else that's a big step Uh uh-huh so i didn't even realize it i think till i verbalized it so that was a little surprising (laughs) what did i just say (laughs) (laughs) but yeah so again just the providence and god just putting me there and yeah i'm just so grateful for that yeah so there is a sense of you then start to tell people and you're talking about this with friends and family and you're graduating from here and you're and you're saying I'm going to enter the convent and people have questions so what were some of the reactions of friends and family to your decision to formally enter one of the reactions I remember from a friend on campus was she was completely stoked (laughs) I think more than I was (laughs) and so I kind of freaked out oh my gosh, that's so amazing. That's so great. And she's kind of dancing around. And I said, okay, I'm not really 100% sure. So, <laughs> okay, that's okay. But not final vows yet. Right, right. right. Yeah. Um, but so that was that was probably the most favorable reaction I got. And we, we haven't stayed t- in touch a ton, but we still have a little bit. So mm-hmm. um, that's been neat. But my family was... My parents have been supportive. And they I had shared with them a little bit that I was discerning... But I actually called them on the phone, and I don't really like talking on the phone anyway, But I and probably I was monotone and whatever, and so I shared with them, and they said, well, are you sure? I, does You don't sound very happy. <laughs> so I think it was just kind of the way that it was communicated. But then, you know, they realized, as I shared more, just that it was real, and, and it was happy about it for the most part. I think I was still pretty apprehensive, though. Sure, so, yeah. And then... Some of my other, my sister, she was angry. Mm -hmm. We had had a friend from the Hungarian community actually enter another community a few years prior. And for different reasons and circumstances, she had felt really hurt by different things um, in that experience. So she was just anticipating, I think, that I was being stolen from her and leaving them behind. And 
abandoning them. So that was hard. It was hard for her. And then other people, coworkers, just kind of for my summer job at the Yacht Club, well, <laughs> they didn't get it at all. So sometimes you just kind of try to avoid the question. <laughs> or if it came up, well, I'm entering the convent. Okay, that conversation's over. That's <laughs> the end of that. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah. so yeah, definitely kind of depending on the circles of... <laughs> Which I think is important because there's a certain sense of courage that it takes to do something that in many ways is is countercultural at least in a an american context we don't see as many religious sisters right now and of course we there's a hope that that will grow and that sisters will have mm-hmm. more of a presence but it's more of a con- foreign concept to people now than it maybe was 50 or 60 years ago and so there there has to be as i said a courage and a and a fortitude to to say nope i'm still going to do this even though everyone's reaction might not be Stoked as, mm-hmm. as your one right, right. was, right? Yeah. <laughs> Had that one special moment, yeah, right? Yeah, gotta hang on to those. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. It's so true. And there are sacrifices. I mean, you talked about your love of family and being used to little kids running around, and that's not the, mm-hmm. the environment of a convent. So that giving up of marriage and, and possibly motherhood, tell us what that was like and how that factored into your discernment. Again, I really just think the Lord blessed me, not to say that I didn't struggle with those things mm-hmm. and have struggled with them, but at least in that initial period, I was just, there was such a certainty. And really, so St. Ignatius talks about this certainty beyond doubt in discernment, which is how people expect to understand and come to know their vocation, but it's actually one of the more rare ways that God reveals or lets us know. And so, but I, I just really had that. And mm. so... Um, there was just such a certainty. So I think it, initially there was more fear about what the life would be like, just what would life look like, mm-hmm. <laughs> and just sort of this big cloud of unknown, mm-hmm. you know. And so, I mean, even the whole summer before I entered, just really afraid. Yeah. <laughs> I think with the motherhood and family, in, in the initial part of formation, especially the first three years and and, and right after entering particularly, Missing my family was really hard. And I think because I knew that I was called to the sisters and that they were my family, and I had felt that, but I, not enough time had passed for me to be known in the way that I was known by my family from mm-hmm. birth, you know? Sure. And so the familiarity isn't there or the kind of common history and the common stories, you know, which now, you know, having been in the convent, you know the priest friends and you know the family friends of the sisters, you know, just you're part of it and you've been part of it. But in the beginning, you so want to be part of it and you are, but you feel like you're not quite yet. So that was really hard for me. Um, Sunday afternoons where you kind of think like, oh, well, we, we're going to recreate and play a game. But, and we, we actually didn't really do that with my family, but just not being with those people. Yeah. So, but that really did, I think, just you grow into the new family. And really, in a way, they the sisters are more my family in a sense because there is a spousal bond that mm-hmm. we share. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, there is an element of the spousal bond with Jesus that actually we share with each other. Right. And so really it it is a family and it's different, but yeah. <laughs> a bunch of women, but <laughs> it's a family. <laughs> I mean, you lived in a all women's residence hall, yeah, so right, you had a little, right. little, little hint of what that could, what that could bring. Right. But, yeah. <laughs> right. And then the motherhood aspect 
I think, interestingly, as much as I love little kids, I I kind of always also had a sense of the tremendous responsibility that that is, and in a way was a little bit relieved <laughs> that I wasn't called <laughs> to take that on. <laughs> I just, oh, wow, they, parents amaze me, you know. I mean, what they have to deal with is intense. So, so it's kind of a relief at first. I think as time went on, I struggled a little bit more with not having sort of that actual physical nurturing of a child and, and being able to be, a, yeah, a mother in that sense. But really, I think that has just opened the door to a deepening of spiritual motherhood. Mm-hmm. And really, I mean, all all motherhood is primarily spiritual and some mm-hmm. of it's physical, right. right? Because even a physical mom, what is she mainly doing? <laughs> Spiritually nurturing that yeah. child. I mean, loving them and, and hopefully leading them to God. So... But then also in the spiritual motherhood, it's also physical. It's not like we're devoid of human contact, right? right? So, I mean, we're we're body, soul. And so I try to just kind of ponder those things more deeply and ask the Lord to show me how I can live that out. And, and honestly, then when it hurts, then that's a beautiful gift I can offer because, mm-hmm. and, that, and then that's a fruitfulness that itself, you know, in, in the giving up of the physical motherhood does allow for our fruitfulness in the spiritual realm which sometimes is felt and sometimes isn't. And mm-hmm. so it's definitely, I've had lots of experiences of spiritual motherhood and I mean, motherhood just period. And sure. so it definitely has not been bereft of that reality of mm-hmm. who I'm called to be mm-hmm. as a woman. Mm-hmm. And then what was the process of formation to the point of final vows and even taking a new name? And tell us some about that if you would. Right. So the first three years, we have a year of postulancy and then two years of novitiate. And then in our community, we profess vows, temporary vows for three years and then renew for two more before final vows. So that's kind of the the basic outline. We receive our habit and sister name after our postulancy. So after the first year, we submit three name choices and a corresponding name day. So a feast feast day of the saint or whatever and we also submit the reasons why we want those so for me i had encountered teresa benedict of the cross through the stein project and the name kind of always stuck with me and then when i was praying as a postulant i was praying with the gospel of the annunciation and it was just clear to me that the lord sort of was giving me my name in that moment so the angel Gabriel says to her, this is in my translation of the Bible, which is not what we read at Mass, but Uh anyway, it says, Rejoice, O highly favored daughter, the Lord is with you. Blessed are you among women. And I had understood the name Benedicta to mean blessed, but in that moment it got associated with Our Lady, blessed among women, to be called to, in my case, to to give my whole life to Jesus, um, to be chosen to be his bride. And, And how yeah, highly favored I am mm-hmm. <laughs> as a result. And so so I, that was my first name choice, and I ended up getting that. So I had ended up, I put a couple other ones down because we had to, and that yeah. was, the sisters kind of teased me. <laughs> so, <laughs> Not as good of reasons yeah, for these. Yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> right. But yeah, I got the name Benedicta, and that has really been just sort of also part of the mystery of our consecration. You know, I love the ceremony where the sister receives her name because it reveals a part of her that maybe you did see already, but 
oh yeah, you can now see it really, or mm-hmm. you didn't realize about her, but it is the mystery through which the Lord speaks to us. And so that's just a beautiful entryway into our new life as sisters, new life in Christ. And then, yeah, that journey just continues um, up until, I mean, the discernment of the vocation up until final vows. Mm-hmm. And for me, I actually, um, I ended up requesting an extra year of temporary vows. So for me, it was nine years before final vows. But the grace of that is so, I was thinking about it yesterday as we were playing bid euchre at recreation. I was thinking, <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for life. Like, this is great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we're playing bid euchre and I love these people and just such a grace to kind of make that step where, yeah, for better or for worse, right. I'm in it. And yeah, yeah there's going to be worse, but this is good. Yeah. I think people be interested about this, the reality of like hearing a new name. So what was your given name that people knew you by? Yeah, yeah. So I was Annie, okay. Annie Duna, yeah. And, and then and people are all of a sudden calling you Sister Benedicta. Right. Is that sort of like a mental like, oh, yeah, that, that did happen. Right, yeah. yeah. The sisters tease that, you know, how many times do they have to call your name before you turn your head, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, it's interesting. So with the sisters, it actually takes hold pretty quickly. Uh, and for me, it did. But uh, with my family, they still call me every last nickname I ever had in Hungarian, Hunglish, English, you name it. So <laughs> that's just, yeah, with the family, that's just kind of what stuck. They never yeah. quite picked up on that, which is yeah. fine. Yeah. <laughs> so you talked about some apprehension of what was it going to be like. But obviously, over the course of, of nine years and to the point of final vows, you, you got a good sense of that. So what is a day in the life of a sister of St. Francis of Perpetual Adoration? We begin and end our day with prayer, which you might assume. <laughs> <laughs> we don't spend our whole day in the chapel, um, but thankfully right now, at least we have enough sisters to cover the adoration so that typically, I mean, there are some sisters that do up to four hours a day, one of them, maybe two, but generally one, in addition to community prayers. And that's throughout the day. So our elderly sisters take the daytime hours and then the younger and active sisters take the nighttime hours. And so you sign up for a time and kind of figure out what works for your body and right. <laughs> the yeah. best anyway. And But we, we begin the day with um, silent prayer, half hour meditation, morning prayer together, mass, and then... The sisters, our active apostolates are in healthcare and education. We have 13 hospitals under the Corporation of Franciscan Alliance, mainly in Indiana, and then teach from kindergarten through college. We sponsor the University of St. Francis in Fort Wayne, and so kind of all levels of education. So for the daytime, the sisters are primarily engaged in that apostolic activity, whether it be just, you know, going to school and and hanging out with kids and <laughs> teaching them or working, some of the sisters work in spiritual care, administration, nursing, all kinds of stuff in the hospital. And so that is kind of the bulk of the day. In the evening, we come back and have a holy hour with rosary, evening prayer, and benediction, and always have supper together and then recreation every day. Um, And so that sometimes is cards, sometimes it's doing a puzzle or people are doing different stuff, but kind of taking intentional family time every day. Um, and then in the evening, we're able to, you know, spend more time in prayer or get ready for the next day, lesson plan, whatever. So, um, or just go to bed because <laughs> when you wake up at, or in chapel by 530 and you had an hour of adoration, you're tired. <laughs> better get to bed. Yeah, better get to bed soon. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of almost have to carve out time for prayer, which is kind of 
contrary to what people think, but but definitely is a lot of it more built in, which is also a huge, huge grace and part mm-hmm. of the life then mm-hmm. to kind of foster and help us uh, <laughs> stay on track. So, yeah. And you discussed the gift of the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. I, I love that idea of no matter, almost no matter where we go in the world and certainly here on campus that Jesus is present there just in case. Mm-hmm. And you now have the grace of, of living in a place where Jesus is always present in his Eucharistic self. So how has that been in you know, deepening your devotion to the Eucharist through adoration? Honestly, for me, I think just been growing in, we try to grow in humility, but it's always a miserable failure, <laughs> to be honest. <laughs> but I've just been really, the idea of Jesus's humility keeps coming to me lately. And yeah, I can try and grow in humility, but what inspires me and what gives me courage and hope that there's a chance that I can grow in any kind of virtue is his humility, that he humbled himself to actually enter into my misery. And the more miserable I am, the greater right I have to his mercy. Mm. Um, the, The greater the sinner, the greater right I have to his mercy. And that just blows my mind, you know, I mean, every day. And as I continue to just work through things, just like continued healing and continued acceptance of weaknesses. And, you know, having been in the common 11 years, you think, well, shouldn't you be a little more put together? Or shouldn't you, I don't know, be a little more something? Right. <laughs> but really, I think just sort of embracing that nothingness and that misery of, no, I I am just a total schlep. Like, there's just no other way to say it. Um, a work I, in progress. Yeah, yeah, I just always will be. But, you know, it's Jesus. And so, yeah, in the Eucharist, I think just um, being fed and sustained in that love of, I want to be with you. This is, I think, too, kind of, we're the ones that run away from ourselves. Jesus the Lord is always more present to us than we are to ourselves. And and so that too, in his Eucharistic presence sort of highlights and emphasizes that, but then also sort of in my interior recollection and trying to be present to him is realizing that he is there. And then I think that kind of just goes hand in hand. So the Eucharistic mm-hmm. presence, but also the indwelling, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. that's so, that's just as real. And mm-hmm. we really forget about that so much. So sure. both of those, I think, have really been drawing me deeper. Well, and it's related to the overall theme of this podcast, which is seeking holiness mm-hmm. in, in every day and in all different walks of life. And I think people would be surprised to hear, like you say, <laughs> you don't think of yourself as very far along because, my goodness, Mm-mm, you know, you're, nope. <laughs> <laughs> Just you're <starting>. a religious <laughs> sister and adoration every day. And I mean, all those things are, I think there's a lot of people in the world who could only dream of that, that much time in prayer or that. And yet you realize that we're still far off. We're mm-hmm. still far off and it's still this letting God in and do work within you that draws you to holiness. So could you give us a sense of your own understanding of holiness and your call to it and maybe some examples of it that you see in your religious family? Holiness, like I was kind of saying, I think really is just union with Jesus. I mean, being with him. And then really what I think that translates to in everyday life is letting 
things be what they are. You know, let it be to me and let it be what it is. Um, Because Jesus really is present. He is with us in the Eucharist, in our souls. And so why am I running from him? (laughs) Why Mm -hmm. am I putting up all these barriers in my mind of why I'm not qualified or why I need to improve this and this and this before he'll come to me or reach me or, you know, like, and so... Yeah, so I think it. I've really just, I think holiness consists in accepting who we are, first of all, accepting, I mean, acceptance overall of everything, mm-hmm. <laughs> right, of just what is, mm-hmm. um, accepting reality, which is that God loves us, even when we don't recognize it or feel it, accepting myself as I am, flawed and sinful, accepting life circumstances. And I don't know, I mean, yesterday, so I was kind of, I was proud of myself because, all right, so I got a long story, but we ended up, I was trying to take a picture outside for our vocation poster. And the sister was kind of walking and tripped over this bench thing. And anyway, I ended up trying to help her and got this kind of skin in my finger. And so I was, it was painful, but then I, those kinds of things tend to make me angry, <laughs> just like frustrated. And okay, here's another obstacle. I didn't wasn't planning on this. I got to go clean it out and it's whatever. So, and I just, I don't know. The Lord just gave me this grace of just kind of laughing at, about it and just sort of like, yep, life is never what we think, but, mm-hmm. but then why am I putting all this pressure on it to be something that it's not and then missing what is? <laughs> so yeah, lately I've just really been trying to accept what is more deeply. And then really that gives space for allowing the good and the beauty that's there to be there because otherwise, at least for myself, I know I just miss it (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I'm too concerned about whatever else. Um, So yeah, I don't know. I really just have been delighting all along. I've delighted in the sisters, but lately they just sometimes you just kind of want to eat them up, you know? (laughs) So you see, you know, there's this one sister who, so we have to, we have to snap the scapular in the back here. Uh There's a little button. And so she can't do it. She's 89. And so she has her morning adoration and it's right kind of when we have our community prayers. So I'm walking into chapel and every once in a while catch where she makes the, or she asks the other sister who's with her to snap, kind of help her get dressed. So they're mm-hmm. both in chapel and it, you kind of just know if you're on 530 adoration, you got to help Sister Reverend and get dressed, you know? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> but when you just walk by and catch this one 80-year-old sister helping button another 80-year-old sister's habit and then kind of you see the silhouette uh, kind of against the, you know, monstrance in the background. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just, those little things and just kind of how life is made up of those little things, but then really just delighting in that. It's just so good. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's <laughs> And there's so much of that, that I, I think, yeah, gratitude too um, really plays into holiness and just being able to say thank you for everything but starting maybe with the things that are easier to be thankful for yeah, and then yeah. and then asking the Lord to show us how or to give us the grace to be thankful for the harder things. And it makes me think of another thing that we've been talking about this season, uh, just because of the time that we're in in the church, is that we're going through this period of terrible suffering, mm-hmm. of this revelation of terrible abuses that have happened, especially with children or other vulnerable persons and I think a lot of people have struggled with their faith and with their relationship to the church because of that. But what I'm hearing you say is 
an acceptance of, of things that have happened and yet not losing sight of what is good mm-hmm. is an important thing to do. So does that resonate with what you think, what is the way forward for us as, as the church and knowing what we know has happened and, of course, taking steps so that it never happens again, but mm-hmm. reconciling our faith with some of that darkness? Right. I think virtue, the virtue of hope is really key thing, you know, just kind of seeing that there is still good and trusting that the Lord is in it still and is still with us. Yeah, I think we we have to address the hurt, you know, the real suffering and the real damage that has been done. And and we can't just sort of give these placating <laughs> comments or something, but it does remain true that the church was founded by Christ and is here because of him and the Holy Spirit, not because of any human being. Mm-hmm. And so what we receive through and from the church is the treasure that we can't, there is nowhere else to get it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so, I mean, we have glimpses of it elsewhere, of course, but but what we're given in the church remains, it is still given. Mm-hmm. Jesus continues to give himself. And I think that's that's the answer is Jesus keeps giving and Jesus is the divine physician who in his ways that we don't understand can actually heal these atrocities. And mm-hmm. and then, yeah, to continue to just trust that, which I think can be a great challenge, mm-hmm. especially for those who have been so profoundly hurt. Yeah, and to always, of course, continue in our prayer as as the body of Christ for those members who have suffered so dearly. Mm-hmm. Changing gears a little bit, I'm interested to hear from you if you're talking to a young woman who's thinking about religious life, what are some bits of advice or counsel that you give to someone who maybe is just hearing about this for the first time or thinking, is that something that I'm being called to do? What are some things that you say? I think the first order of business is always prayer. (laughs) So there has to be a relationship with the Lord. So religious life is a call to be Jesus's spouse. And so it's about a relationship. And so it's discernment of any vocation is about relationship. And it's about the mystery of our life in relationship to God. And so I would just, first of all, say, pray and continue to grow in your relationship with the Lord and not and to not even necessarily pray about discernment. I think it's good to get exposure, learn more, bring it to the Lord and certainly talk to him about it, but don't make that the focus of your prayer because mm. then you're sort of maybe, I think it can turn into an idolization of figuring out my vocation versus yeah. just being with the Lord. So, mm-hmm. and really, I think also to sort of just pray about discernment or or really kind of get wrapped up in trying to figure it out actually is demeaning to ourselves because we're much more complex and beautiful and amazing, amazingly mysterious than just, okay, slap a state of life on me. Mm-hmm. You know, like, yeah. okay, am I married? Am I called to be married? Religious? You know, tell me. Well, yeah. no, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> you're, you're a lot more, yeah, you're human and, and it's, it's much more beautiful than that to discover that. So I think prayer, like I said, to kind of expose yourself more, I think speaking with women, well, religious, if that's sort of on your heart, getting to know about it more, even if you don't particularly feel called, I think just exploring that and learning more about it 
but then also speaking to married couples who are living that vocation and and just understanding better what the reality of it is because you don't marry an idea of someone and you don't enter the idea of a religious vocation. It's a concrete reality mm-hmm. <laughs> incarnated. And so allowing yourself to just experience those things and then see how it resonates with your heart and and where are you attracted? Are you attracted to the different ways of life? And then of course there's there is a little bit of parsing out because we're all human. So it is natural to want to, to be married, but then maybe parsing out, is there a deeper calling to to that total commitment to Jesus? Or is the spousal call that you have within marriage and then to to live together in union with Christ and seeking him through each other as bride and bridegroom? And you You also talked about this discovery, that it wasn't just this big moment of final vows. There were all these things that were leading up to it. You take your final vows, but then the discernment goes on. Mm -hmm. So what have been some of the apostolates that you yourself have been involved in? After I made first vows, I went to teach 6th through 8th grade religion uh, for a couple of years. I wasn't, I didn't have a teacher license, but just for religion, I guess you don't need that. So I taught. <laughs> you were qualified in was, other ways. Right, yeah. right, right. <laughs> I, I wasn't necessarily qualified for middle school though. Yeah. So <laughs> I discovered that and thankfully was able to be moved elsewhere. So after that, I returned to school for a master's in theology at Franciscan University, after which I served just in kind of various roles at the mother house, sort of in-house jobs, but also tutoring at Our Lady of Hungary here in town, some students. And then after I made final vows, I moved into the role of assistant vocation director, which means I help in our vocation outreach, which is partially evangelization, but also sort of just being available and helping with some exposure to the religious life and walking with women who maybe are just beginning to have a relationship with the Lord, maybe are thinking about religious life, any any end of the spectrum, really. So different college campus visits. We have our discernment retreats that I help host and help host visitors and and things like that. I think with the vocation also to keep in mind that it's something that's already internal to you. And so it's not something that you're going to find sort of out there, but rather at a certain time, you will come to know who you are in a deeper light. And so those Sometimes that's the big aha moment, but like we've been talking about, really often the smaller moments. And so it's a little bit like Michelangelo's philosophy of sculpting. So he had this idea that the form of the sculpture was already in the block of marble, and his job was to remove the excess. And so God, that's our life with God. He's always removing that excess and chiseling away to refine details. And so maybe you go on a retreat and you realize, yes, I want to pursue God more. And I'm going to, and now you're going to daily mass. That's beautiful. And maybe now, so you see your arm and you're like, oh yeah, that's me, you know? Yeah. <laughs> um, but then, but maybe it's not time yet either. So timing is a huge mm. part of it where God knows when the right time is for you to know, but also he works in time. Time is for us. He works in time. It's a medium for grace. And so to allow yourself to be and just live your life and not worry too much, trusting that he will guide you because he actually wants you to know your vocation more than you do because he made you for it. But within that, really to grow in trust that he won't let you down. And at a certain point, 
you will just be able to see, yeah, this is who I am. This is what I was made for, whether in a relationship with a significant other or within, you know, priesthood, religious life or whatnot. Yeah. This is all so beautiful. Sister Benedict, I want to thank you for giving us some of your time today, but even more so for the time that you spend in prayer for the church and the world. It's such a wonderful witness to us and a reminder that we are not alone in whatever struggles we're facing, Mm -hmm. that we have a lot of people who are praying with and for us. So thank you very much for speaking to our audience. You will be in our prayers, and we'd, of course, ask you to keep the whole faith in the audience and yours as well. Oh, certainly, yes. And if I might add that we are certainly praying for the needs of the church and the world, but we also would love to have your specific prayer intentions that can be submitted on our website and then go into our Adoration Chapel, if that would be of interest. So our website is ssfpa.org. So that kind of is the initials of our name, ssfpa.org. And then those go in and the sisters pray 24-7 for those intentions in front of the Blessed Sacrament. Wonderful, wonderful. Thanks Thank for you, having Rich. me. Absolutely. So that concludes this week's episode of Everyday Holiness, a Faith Indie podcast. We thank you for joining us. We will let you know about new episodes through our daily gospel reflection. And of course, you can sign up for that at faith.indy.edu slash sign up. We thank you for joining us, and we hope to have you with us next time. Mm-hmm.